that you guys are getting your seats. You can take your Bibles out, have your phones out. However you access the scriptures, we're going to take some time to, to read God's word and then I'll have a short teach. No, short. I'm not going to say short. I'm going to do my best to keep it under 30 minutes, okay? That's always my goal, just so you know. Um, but but uh, teaching on God's word. We are finishing our series on the first principles of the faith. The first principles of the faith um, are rooted in the first three chapters of the Bible. I've said this time and time again, that in, in the first three chapters of the Bible, you have three of the four movements of all of Scripture. If we are to understand Scripture as creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, you have three of the four movements in, this three, in these three chapters. And so it's a vitally important um, part of the Scriptures to understand. And what I would argue is that in you, if you understand this section of Scriptures, you can really begin to understand all of the Scriptures. And so we conclude our um, series this morning by looking at Genesis 3, verses 14 through 24. If uh, you wanted a title for this to help frame, give you a frame of mind, I'm calling it the three monuments of the covenant of grace. That's big words, three monuments, covenant of grace, but let's jump in. You'll so, we'll start in verse 14. Um, the Lord God said to the serpent, mind you, he's dealing with the naked in Adam and Eve who had just realize that they are scared of God and, and they're blaming one another and hiding from one another. And so Eve had just said, the, the serpent made me do it. And so God turns to the serpent and says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work, the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, which is an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The first time I went to New York City, I wanted to do what all tourists did when they go there, to see all the sights. But what I had no concept of before coming to New York City is that New York City is so much bigger than I could have imagined. I mean, it is so massive. I remember being on the highway, and it was dark, heading from LaGuardia Airport into Manhattan and just being amazed at these buildings that just seemed to go forever to the sky and then forever along my, my scope. And so we drove into this little east village, and we kind of hunkered down into it, and I was feeling so overwhelmed by the vastness of this city 
How am I going to see all the sights? How am I going to even understand what it is that I'm going to? And so we went to bed, and I said, we, we, we've got to figure this city out. I've got to find a way to see the city and really grasp all that it is. And so the next day when we woke up, one of the first things that we did is we went to the Empire State Building, which is in the center of Manhattan. And inside the Empire State Building, they'll, they'll whisk you up to the top observatory. And it's a really, really neat experience. You can see, I don't think I've ever been up that high in my life in a building. And on top of the observatory, you can look out across all of Manhattan and you can see for miles and miles and miles. And on the top of the observatory, there were three like, main monuments. I was like, ah, I'm starting to see how Manhattan works. I'm starting to see it. So like, give you an example. There's the One World Trade Center in downtown New York. And when I looked on the south side of the observatory, you could see the One World Trade Center. And you're like, oh, now I know why they call it downtown, because it's down, and that's a down part of town. And I see the One World Trade Center, I'm like, ah, yes. And then I looked down where the Empire State Building in Midtown, and, and there's Times Square, and there's Madison Square Garden. I'm going, oh, I, I understand it. And then I go to the north side of the observatory, and I see Central Park, and I go, oh, New York City's starting to make sense. It's, it's starting to make sense when you see these monuments and you see it from, from a vantage point, from a, a spot where you look over and you go, okay, I, okay, I think I can, I can get this. Now, there's a lot in New York City to see. In fact, there's too much to do in just a short period of time that we had. But in having that, that perspective or that, that bird's eye view or that platform, it made my time in New York so much better. Here's why I say this. The Bible is a very, very large book with all sorts of different movements and pieces and, and nooks and crannies, much like New York City. I mean, it's just, to, to try to understand it in a short period of time is quite ridiculous. And, and, and perhaps you're like me, like when, you, when you're like, okay, this, this year I'm gonna read the Bible through and through. And so you're like, okay, I really wanna understand the Bible. And then you start reading it and you get, get through Genesis and you're going, yeah, I got this. It's a good story. I mean, there are some weird parts to this. And then Exodus, you're going, yeah, I can get this. And then you get to like Exodus 29 and you're like, what am I reading now? And what am I reading? And then you get to Leviticus and then you're asleep. Like you're done. And then the endeavor of trying to read and understand the scriptures just kind of gets put on the back burner because it's so overwhelming. It's so, and I, I don't want to say it's complex because the Bible is not necessarily complex. It can be. But by and large, you just lose interest, you give up, and you say, it's not worth my time. Well, if we lose out on the Bible, if we have this experience of just giving up and trying to understand it and, and understand its nooks and crannies, we miss out on the very thing that gives us life. And so we've got to find a platform from which we can stand so that we can at least begin to understand where we're going and how, how, how it all works together. If we don't have that platform, we're gonna get lost in Leviticus and fall asleep and miss out on some of the most beautiful aspects of scripture and how it all ties together. And that's what I think our text this morning, the text that we've read this morning does for us. It gives us an observatory for all of scripture. In this text, we see that, that the relationship that God established with man has been changed. No longer is the relationship that God establishes with humanity based on the condition of man's obedience, because that's what it was in Genesis 1 and 2. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you'll live. But you eat of it, you will die. Well, they ate of it, and they died. 
And so now the relationship between God and man is no longer conditioned on man's obedience, but it's conditioned on God's grace. And anytime we have in scripture a relationship between God and man, we call this a covenant. And so before us, our text today is a text in which we describe the beginning of the covenant of grace. A covenant that is established literally from this point of scripture all the way to Revelation 22. So if you want to take your Bible, and, and some of you might have your Bible in your hand, and you go, okay, covenant of works, covenant of grace. If you want to understand the scriptures, understand that all of the scriptures from this point on are defined and seen through the covenant of grace. Now, there are three monuments that I want to point out in this text to help you to get an understanding of the covenant of grace because we need to understand the covenant of grace to understand all of the scriptures. And look, there's so much more that we can explain of the covenant of grace than what we're just looking at right here. But there's just three monuments, three monuments, much like I saw on the observatory on the top of the Empire State Building, that can help us begin to find confidence in understanding all of the scriptures so that no matter where we are, we can go, yes, the covenant of grace, I understand this. So three monuments of this observatory from Genesis 3. We're gonna look at God's promise, God's punishments, and God's provisions. So these are the three monuments that we're gonna look at. So first, the first monument we'll look at from this Covenant of Grace Observatory is the monument of God's promise. The promise I'm referring to relates to, the, to what God said to the serpent after he, uh, after he had tempted Eve and, and had her disobey God. He says this pr- promise in verse 15. This is what God tells him. I will put enmity between you and the woman in between your offspring and hers. And this is where I want you to notice the promise. He shall bruise your head. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Did you catch the promise that God has given to the serpent? That the son of Eve will come and bruise the head of the serpent. Yes, the serpent will bruise Eve's son's heel. But his head will be bruised And that is far dangerous. You see, in this promise, God reveals his plan for dealing with evil forces that exist in our world. These forces are a real and present threat right now. Let us not be fooled to think that there aren't evil forces that exist in this world that can manipulate and change things. And sometimes they work behind the scenes, and I don't want to spend a lot of time. But what we have here is God's promise to the evil forces of what's going to happen to them. That the forces are ultimately subject to God. What I love about this particular promise is how we see this promise fulfilled throughout the scriptures. That regardless of the evil that's taking place in the life of Israel as they're wandering through the wilderness, as they see, as they come into the promised land, and, and they're, they're going away from God, being lured, lured by the gods of the world, that despite what seems to be a resounding victory for the evil forces, this promise is resigning over this. And God says, no, there will be a time. When the serpent, your head will be bruised. Oh, you will get his heel, but he'll crush your head. As Christians, we look at this promise and we trace its movement and we look all the way to Jesus. Jesus was born of God, but in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Here we have a God-man, the Son of God and the Son of Eve. 
It's the fulfillment of the very promises of Genesis 3.15 that God himself would come, born of a woman. It was this person, Jesus, who resisted the temptation of the evil one unlike his first parents, our first parents, Adam and Eve. It was Jesus who, when he went into his ministry, was casting out evil ones wherever he went. They were always subject to him, and he would cast them out. It was Jesus whose heel was bruised in the process of being killed and put on a cross. But it was Jesus who crushed the head of the serpent, who bruised it when he was raised from the dead. The writer of Hebrews says of Jesus, Jesus' death destroyed the one who had the power of death. Now how do we know this? Because Jesus was the one who was raised from the dead, conquering death. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. And as Christians, we must see this promise and the fulfillment of it in Jesus For when we see it, we find an incredible boost of confidence in this life. Here we have one who has promised and fulfilled the defeat of evil. I love the movie Man on Fire. It's perhaps one of my favorite movies of all time. The movie is about an ex-military man played by Denzel Washington. And I think Denzel makes the movie. He really does. And as an ex-military man, he was hired to protect a wealthy Mexican daughter from being kidnapped for ransom. When the daughter was ultimately kidnapped by the Mexican cartels that were around this world, around the world where the girl was going in, Denzel began his quest to return the daughter back to his family. And it's amazing. <laughs> when Denzel gets on the phone with the, with the cartel, he's like, I'm coming for you. And the movie's like, I promise you, I'm going to come and get you. And it shows him coming and get you. Now, it's kind of gruesome. Like it's, I mean, it's pretty bad of the bone. I love it. But how does he finally... How does Denzel finally get the daughter back? He gives himself as a ransom for her. And it's a beautiful picture of Denzel. He's like, I- I've messed up this cartel. I mean, he, he went through this cartel like it was, it was nothing, like a, a warm butter through, but, or a, a knife through warm butter. I mean, he just went through it. But he gave himself, and they allowed the little girl who they kidnapped to go back to the family in place of Denzel. Creasy is what they would call him. It's the same thing for us with Jesus. Jesus' heel was bruised, but in the process of him giving his life for us on the cross, a fulfillment of the very promise of Genesis 3.15, we have the guarantee of the victory over evil. And yes, Christ, his heel was bruised, but he rose from the dead, conquering even death itself. Oh, my friends, Evil, while real and incredibly dangerous for us, is no match for the God of this world who is greater than evil. Look, we can fall into temptation of of, of living in a pessimistic view of our world. We can worry about the direction of our country. We can lose sleep over the actions of our leaders. We can even become desperate because we lose control of our own lives. We we think we can live our lives a certain way, but then it shows us it's not. And we can fall into this pessimistic view, but let us not fall into this pessimistic view. Rather, let us hold tightly to the one who not only promised the bruising of the evil one's head, but delivered on that promise through Jesus. Let us hold tightly to the crucified and resurrected Jesus, regardless of our circumstances, whether we are being persecuted, whether we are being tempted. Let us hold fast to the one who is greater than evil. Let us begin to optimistically view our world, rejoicing that our God is greater than evil. He has promised this to us, and he has fulfilled this in Jesus.
the covenant of grace, a promise fulfilled, the monument standing before us, fear not. So we've got the covenant of grace, the three monuments of the covenant of grace, this. The first monument is the monument of God's promise to us to defeat evil. The second monument I want you to see is the monument of God's punishment. Monument of God's punishment. The punishments I'm referring to are found in verses 16 through 19. In these verses, God punishes both Adam and Eve for their disobedience by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To Eve, God said that he will multiply her pain in childbearing and that she will have a desire for her husband, but he will rule over her. And I, I've often read this, and I just, this, is just, this is just a little bonus for you. I've often read this, that, that the women have pain in childbearing because of Eve's sin, but if you look at the text, it just says it will multiply her pain in childbearing, assuming that there probably would have been pain to begin with. So it's just mop more. That was just a little bonus for you. But in this second punishment, the one where he says you have a desire for your husband to rule over her, I believe God is saying that Eve will have a desire to be in charge of her husband, but in the end it will never happen. It will be a punishment where a desire goes unfulfilled. Think of that punishment, a desire that will forever go, unfit, ever go unfulfilled. And what a difficult reality and punishment. To Adam, God issues a following punishment. You will work in the field and eat its fruit. Your work will be largely fruitless and your work will largely bring about thorns and thistles. Yes, it will bring about some fruit and food, but it's going to be hard. You're gonna have to work, you're gonna have to sweat, and lastly, you will die. That's the punishment that Adam, Adam has. It's like these unfulfilled desires, the desire to work and it be fruitful. It's not gonna be that way. Perhaps you know that. Well, these punishments might seem harsh, but they are actually vitally important to the covenant of grace, and here's why. First off, these punishments demonstrate to us that God is in fact just. God told Adam that the day he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would die. And Adam, while not dying physically in this one moment, he does die spiritually and emotionally. It's rough. Same with Eve. So God is simply just being faithful and just to his word, to the covenant that he established with Adam. And since God is faithful and just to his word, we can say that in fact, God is good. And while punishments might be difficult for us to wrap our minds around, the punishments are good. And they're good because of this second reality. These re this punishment reveals both to Adam and Eve and to us our need of grace. The ability for them and for us to earn favor with God in the strength of works is gone. And we need now knowledge of our lostness and the punishments of God teaches us about our lostness and our inability to be with God. Indeed, let me say this, grace presupposes need. Grace presupposes need. If we do not know our need, then we cannot know grace. If we do not know grace, we cannot know God. If we do not know God, we continue to be dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are people who are most be pitied. So in the punishment here, God issues a beautiful gift, a prerequisite necessary to receive grace, tangible knowledge, and evidence of our sins. My kids will know this. We don't spank them hardly ever. But when we do, we make sure that we don't do it in anger or frustration. We make sure that we do it so that they understand that the consequences of their actions 
And let me tell you, because we do it sparingly, when we do it, they learn the lesson being put before them. You don't hit your brother. You don't bite your sister. They learn this. Punishments can be an incredible gift, an important lesson for us to learn. And here, all of us are under this this punishment. We all experience the same punishment that Adam and Eve have have been given to them. Death, fruitless labor, difficulties with one another. Have you not experienced this? Let us lean into this reality. Because this is so vital for us to learn our need for grace. When we ignore the punishment or we deny the punishment, we actually miss out on the very thing we need to be in the presence of God. It is the punishment that reveals to us our need for God's grace. So let us not deny the punishment that God has given to us. Let us lean into it that we might find our need. And in finding our need, finding God's grace. Now you might have a hard time finding God's grace amidst the punishment. And that's why I want to turn your attention to the third monument of Genesis 3. And it's the monument of God's provision. We've looked at God's promise. We've looked at God's punishment. Lastly, we're going to look at the God's provision. This third monument of Genesis 3 comes in the form of a providing Adam and Eve for clothing. Verse 22 says, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. If you recall, Adam and Eve earlier attempted to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. This vain attempt at covering their shame was for naught because when God began walking in the garden, what did they do? They hid. Their, their, their clothing was insufficient. They were still in their shame. But in this text, God moves towards them in the midst of their shame, in the midst of of their their, their dirtiness, in the midst of their not-enoughness. He moves towards them and does for them what they were incapable of doing for themselves, clothing them. And I want you to understand and to hear this reality so clearly. We, We have to take this to heart. Left to ourselves, you and I will never be able to quiet the shame that speaks so loudly in our minds. This voice that says, you're not enough, you're horrible, you're never going to measure up. That we, left to ourselves, will never be able to quiet this. That that, that this shame will rule and direct all of our steps from, from, from right now to the end of our lives. And yeah, we're gonna attempt to manage this voice by trying to cover it up like fig leap type actions, comparing ourselves to others, denying the reality of that shame, distracting ourselves with entertainment, blaming others for this actions, and even hiding, all in an attempt to hide or to quiet the voice of shame that echoes in our minds. And while these distractions, denials, comparisons will for a time quiet that voice, in the end, that voice will still rule and guide and direct us Because left to ourselves, we have no power to clothe the shame that directs ourselves. Of course, the beauty of this text demonstrates to us an alternative, a way for our shame to be covered. And the way that shame is covered is by an act of God's provision. God in this moment, Genesis 3, 22, doesn't use leaves, but use garments of skin. 
In using garments of skin, it's implied that there was a death, a death by the way of an animal. And this death of an animal then allowed the skins to then cover the shame of Adam and Eve and allow them to live peaceably without anything hidden. I think this thematic moment right here is something that we can trace all throughout the Bible. It's like a, it's like a thread that we see throughout the whole Bible. Genesis 22, there's a ram in the thicket that Abraham um, could sacrifice rather than his son Isaac. In Exodus, there's a lamb who was slain in the place of the firstborn, which brings ultimately the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. In the temple practices, there are bulls and goats and lambs that were slain for the sins of the people of God that would enable them to not walk in shame before God, but to live peaceably with their God. We have this thread that is beginning to form throughout the Old Testament, but it finds its great fulfillment in Jesus. In Jesus, we see a greater ram, the one caught in the thicket, a son offered by God to free us from our sins. In Jesus, we have the Lamb of God who was given to redeem us from our sin. In him, in Jesus, we have the sacrifice capable of covering our shame through a righteousness that can be imputed to us, given to us by faith. Through entrusting ourselves to this Jesus, looking to his death and to his life after death, is the very thing that enables us to live, not in our shame, but to be covered by the very garments that God provides for us. I don't know if you did this as a child, but did you ever put on the coat that your parents had in their, in their wardrobe? I mean, if I, if I look back to some of my high school pictures when I go to prom, I mean, I was like, I'm wearing one of those coats because that was what was styling and profiling back in the day. Like circa 2000, it was like baggy coats. And every time I look at that, I'm like, I am wearing a coat that I don't deserve to, what? That coat is far too big. The shoulders are out too big. But I think this is a beautiful picture of us wearing the robe that Christ gives to us by faith. It's a gigantic robe, and we look ridiculous in it because it's not our robe. But guess what? It's better than any sort of scraps that we could put together to go to a beautiful party. God provides us a beautiful outfit, a, a robe of righteousness that enables us to not be exposed in our shame. To those of you that have trusted Christ, let me just speak briefly to you. Get comfortable wearing that robe. We often think, ah, this thing just doesn't fit. I don't, I don't really look right. There's no way I can be wearing this robe. But Jesus put that robe on your shoulders. In trusting him, he put that robe. It's not based off of what you do. It's not based off of your works. It is his grace. He put it on you. Get used to it. To those of you that have not trusted Christ and you're trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian, let me just simply say this. To be a Christian is not trying to get God to love you, to like clean up your life and to... And to like, okay, if I, can, if I can go to church a little bit more, if I can read my Bible a little bit more, maybe God will love me. Maybe he'll put that robe on me. But that is not what it means to be a Christian. No, nothing you do enables God to put the coat on you. He puts the coat on you. And so what I wanna tell you, to those of you that are not followers of Christ, that have yet to trust his death, his life, his resurrection, 
is to trust that today. There is nothing you do that enables God to put that robe on you. He places it on you by grace through faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be covered in your shame. And shame's voice will not rule your life. It's a beautiful thing. God has provided a way to deal with this shame. So three beautiful monuments. Three beautiful monuments of the covenant of grace that literally can shape how we see scripture. You know, when I came down from the Empire State Building that morning um, uh, of New York City, I wanna say this, I walked around New York with a, with a newfound confidence. I really did. I knew that when we were, we were heading on a certain direction that we were heading towards downtown, that if we were heading north, we were heading towards Central Park, that, that to my left or to my right, was the Madison Square Garden or, or Times Square. I had a, so much more confidence when doing it because I got on top and I saw it with my own eyes. Genesis 3 has done that for us as well. The covenant of grace should have so much more clarity because in the covenant of grace, we have a promise that evil will not prevail. In the covenant of grace, we have a punishment that we shouldn't avoid, that we should lean into, that makes us aware of our need, our need of of God's grace, not of our ability, but of God's grace. And in the covenant of grace, we have God providing a way for us to be covered. What a beautiful picture of the covenant of grace, understanding all of scripture, or at least the most of scripture, through these three monuments. Remember those three monuments. Read his scriptures and find the confidence that we all can have in reading the scriptures and finding life. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, we thank you. We thank you for the covenant of grace, your movement to us, sinful and shameful people, people who are trying to measure up, people who are trying to do it, people who are trying to control our lives. We thank you for your covenant of grace, which reveals to us that, that in the end, the evil one will be destroyed that the punishments that we have in this life are actually good to remember, remind us of our need. And I ask that you would remind us of our need of your grace so that we might take hold of Jesus, the very provision for our sin and our shame. Lord, let us put this coat on and get comfortable wearing this coat of righteousness given to us by faith through your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <laughs>